Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lovati. Today I'm joined by the psychologist, educator, and author, Dr. Bob Bauer. Dr. Bauer actually co-authored one of my favorite books about suicide loss, so I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today. He's currently a professor of psychology at Highline College in Des Moines, Washington. He's written many books and articles on death, loss, and grief, and has really spent his career specializing in death and surrounding areas. We get into quite a bit on this episode, including how he first got involved in death education, some of the common misconceptions we have about death and grief. We also talk about our view of death in Western culture and how it differs from the rest of the world. We talk about how to speak with children about death and dying. Uh, Dr. Bauer also shares his involvement with the Compassionate Friends Project, which supports bereaved parents. And finally, we talk about his book, After Suicide Loss. I found this to be a really helpful episode. Uh, You know, death is not something that I find we speak about enough. I hope you find it to be helpful as well. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Hey, Bob, how are you? Hey, good. Hey, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Really excited to speak with you. Uh, we, we met with Jack Jordan on a previous episode, um, and, and after speaking with him, realized that I, I really wanted to have the opportunity to sit down with you as well. So grateful to be here today to kind of kick things off. I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about your experience and, and kind of high, at a higher level, what exactly is a death educator um, and, and doing some of the prep for this episode learned it's called thanatology and and how did you get involved in that line of work yeah well let me start off with that first um i i tell this story on the first day uh, i teach a class called death and life and um also a derivation of the course that i'll be teaching next quarter called death across cultures and so for the first day of class i say let me tell you a little bit about how i got into this I want to take you back to February 4th, 1975. And then I point to some young student and I say, so what were you doing back in 1975? (laughs) Look on their face and people start laughing, you know. And I say, well, for me, I was getting ready to go teach a class out at Fort Lewis. I live in Seattle and Fort Lewis is in Tacoma. 
and I, I was teaching um, some psychology classes to soldiers. Phone rings. It's like six, six o'clock at night. It's my mother. She's crying. She's yelling. She's screaming, saying, your father's in the hospital dying. Wow. And I asked my students, how many of you don't like your mother crying, right? Um, I was in my late 20s at the time. And it's like, mom, what is, what do you mean dad's? My dad was a workaholic. He never even had time to be sick. And now he's in the hospital dying. How could this happen? So I, um, she told me where he was at Harvard View Hospital, downtown Seattle. And so I drove there thinking, what is going on? And I arrived there and I was so shook up that I pulled out my wallet and just showed my driver's license um i have the same name as my dad he's uh, bob senior and i'm bob jr and she points down the hall to emergency room and i walk in and it's chaos there i look over there's my mother and my four brothers and sisters my two brothers are like in their 20s and my two sisters are like 14 and 16 years old and my mom gestures over and I look over and there's my dad lying on a gurney, like he's sleeping. So I go to my mom, what is going on? In the meantime, there's all this chaos and the emergency room going on. And she said, he went into, a, he was feeling kind of sick today, decided to stay home from work, went to a bank, walked in. The story is he reached up to get something out of the um, safety deposit box and hit the floor. And by the time they got the 911 folks there, he, he wasn't breathing and his heart had stopped and they had to bring him back. And she said, at the moment, mm. we don't know whether he's had a stroke or um, or a heart attack. As it was, it was, a, it was a stroke. So we sat there for hours and they finally got him into a room. And then they said, well, uh, so my brother took my sisters home. And then uh, at about two in the morning, he got stabilized. And uh, so the doctor said, well, you, you know, he's going to make it through the night. We don't know after that but you know once you go home get some sleep come back tomorrow so i'm standing in the parking lot of harborview hospital in seattle my mother's you know tears streaming down her face and she says to me i want you to see about setting up a uh, a funeral for your father tomorrow <coughs> so the next day i taught my class <coughs> classes in the morning excuse me and uh so I'm driving to a funeral home. Back then I had a master's degree. Um, and I'm saying to myself, I don't know about death, grief, loss, let alone how to set up a funeral. And I have a master's degree in psychology. I'm supposed to know some things about human behavior. So <clears throat> I get to the funeral home. Uh, I talk to the guy. He gives me um, some information about what to do. And then the jumping ahead my dad had had a massive stroke he was in a coma for a month uh he came out of the coma they said he probably won't walk again uh he learned how to walk again and he walked out of the hospital at the three-month point he'd gained you know he was in his 50s at the time uh he looked like a you know he was in his 70s or 80s and he ended up living another 28 years wow so yeah, so um, now, Nick, fast forward a year, and I get a knock at my door. I, I was teaching then at Seattle Central Community College, and this uh, instructor says, we're giving money for people uh, who want to create a new class. Uh, do you have any ideas? And I said, yeah, I'd like to create a class on death. 
And she goes, okay, so um, why don't you write up the proposal? So I did. She I went to the committee. Uh, she came back to me and said, the committee really likes your proposal. Uh, uh, how much money do you think you need for this grant? And I, I never, I was just started in my teaching career and I, I didn't know. So I said, I don't know. How about like $400 or whatever? So she kind of smiled and said, okay. And so the joke is, you know, that summer, all the research I did, I probably earned about 50 cents an hour, you know, putting <laughs> together this class. Yeah. So uh, it was supposed to be offered in January of 77. And a month or so before that, the quarterly came out that announced all the classes and they had accidentally left the death class out. And so it's like, uh, they said, we're sorry, you know, uh, but we're going to pass around a bunch of flyers and, you know, um, maybe we can advertise the class that way. The story's almost done. And I thought, oh, great, you know. So so I arrived that uh, first week of January. It's a Wednesday night class. And I walk into my classroom and nobody's there. Mm. I'm thinking, I did all this work and, you know, no one should. And then this woman walked in and she goes, oh, your class has been moved down the hall. So I walk down the hall, I walk in, 40 people are sitting there, signed oh, wow. up for a death class. And that was the beginning of my career. Wow. That had to be a pretty powerful moment to, to validate all the hard work you put in and that people are, in fact, interested in learning about this. Yes. Yeah. In fact, six of the people were my colleagues, were instructors themselves who thought, oh, I'm, I think I'm, you know, which is very intimidating as a young instructor at the time but it was great everyone was supportive they you know and that you know took me off and i've been teaching that class ever since very cool I, I appreciate the story i think a lot of what we're going to talk about today revolves around death how we experience it as those who survive a loss the things we're not taught around death, some of the fear that shows up when we think about death, uh, think about losing our own loved ones, think about our own death. I think what, where I'd like to go next is you, you mentioned the name of this class is, I believe it's Death and Life. And if I'm not mistaken, when you first started it in 77, it was called Death and Dying. And I that really uh, sparked my curiosity. I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts in changing the name and why it is that you view that class is really about life and living and not just death and dying. Yeah, my students um, over the first few years that I was teaching the class, you know, kept saying to me, you should say, change the name of this course because, you know, it's really about life. It's, you know, me, my students saying, looking at death, looking at what if my loved ones died? What if I had a terminal illness and so on? And and it made me think about my life. So so we changed it. Interesting. Are there are there any folks that you look to um, thinking philosophers or other educators in the past that have really put a lot of emphasis and focus on death uh, in teaching your course? Yeah, the big, you know, the big name, the grandmother of death and dying is Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is a um, who was a um, physician. And back then, when I was, you know, doing the research, um, I went into the university bookstore and I said, "Give me all your books on death." Back then, that was the biggest bookstore in the Northwest, and uh, they brought six books, and two of them were by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So I used her her books at first, and then. 
uh, over the years, there emerged some textbooks uh, that were very good on death. Um, one is called um, The Last Dance by Lynn DeSpelder and um, Al Strickland, um, a uh, married couple who joined together. And they're like in their 12th edition now of this book, its most popular book. And that that was a very good and very thorough. and. And that I got to know them, and uh, I was able to give some feedback on the book. So that, you know, that that was a big name as well. In the meantime, I like Jack Jordan, um, who's the co-author of the suicide book. Um, I joined, oh, more than forty years ago, the death um, organization uh, called the Association for Death Education and Counseling. And so I attended a lot of their workshops and I learned a lot from some of the experts in the field. Uh, as you uh, said, the term thanatologist. Yeah. I write up on the board uh, to my students and I say, how many of you have taken a class in thanatology? And they all sit there because no one knows that word. And I go, guess what? You're in it now. And I said, you can understand why I would I didn't call this class Thanatology 101 because people would know what they were signing up for. It does sound a little intimidating if you don't know what it is. Yeah. So I'm curious. I'm, uh, take me to the point in time where you are putting this class together. So mid 1970s, if my understanding is correct, a lot of the work that Kubler uh, Ross did was in the 50s and 60s. That's when she came up with her five stages of grief which I mean, obviously we, we've seen how that's taken off since then. Did you, did you find that this was really an understudied and under-focused area or that there was a lot of research out there that just wasn't getting a lot of attention in, in publication at the time? Yeah, there might've been people out there, but you know, of course this was before the internet and um, you know, we were, we, we relied on books and conferences and so on, but no, uh, one of the jokes of, about it early on when I was teaching the class, people would say, oh, so what are you teaching this quarter? And I'd say, oh, I'm teaching a class called uh, Death and Dying. And uh, quite a few of the people would go, why are, why are you taking a class? And then they would point to their ear on death and dying. I go, no, no, death and dying. And they go, <laughs> oh, oh, death and dying. But, you know, looking around the, the nation, they're just, you know, they're and still today, there's just not still not a, a lot of talk about death and grief and loss and so on. I mean, we've just gone through COVID and we're still going through it. And there's been a lot of, um, you know, awareness uh, more than ever before, sadly, about death. But but we're still, I think, pretty much a death denying society. And and uh, we have a long ways to go to sort of implement that into our daily life, not in a negative way, but in saying, you know, I'm not guaranteed of living another day. I'm not guaranteed of, of having, you know, my loved ones another day. And we, you know, we, we forget that. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's been a lot of emphasis recently in the last decade or so on loss and grief and are, you know, defining and redefining our relationships with grief. And I think there are some great people out there now, Gary Rowe, who we had on the podcast a few episodes ago. Uh, Dave, I believe his name is David Kessler, who's worked very closely with uh, Kubler-Ross in the past. So we're, we're putting all this focus on grief and loss, but not necessarily how we get there, which is death itself. Do you find that death, especially in our culture, is still... 
um, as taboo as it was, or do you see that starting to shift? I, I still see it not being dealt with. I wrote an article um, um, on my website just this past summer called um, Griefism um, and how I, I call it institutionalized griefism in that our society um, really doesn't do a good job of of acknowledging death. You know, you um, a loved one dies and we we get three days, you know, or uh, we get we get a week, but you get the first week. It, when it really hits you, it might be a month from now. And uh, how we don't teach kids about death. When I first taught, began to teach the class, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I remember thinking to myself, by the time we get to 2000, we're going to be teaching about death in in high school, in elementary school. Kids are going to, you know, uh, draw pictures of their own funeral and, you know, um, appreciate the fact that, you know, grandma's sick and grandma may die at some point and it's okay to cry and so. And here we are, no further ahead. We're still afraid to talk about death to her, you know, in a school setting. Oh, you better not, you know, one of the books I uh, co-authored is called Death Turns Allie's Family Upside Down. And, in, and it's a kid's book. And it was written with my wife illustrating it and a friend of mine who, who teaches first grade. And when we finished the first draft of the book, I said to my friend who taught first grade, I said, so why don't you take the book uh, to school and then you can read it to your, you know, to your kids and see what they think about it. And she got back to me and said, Bob, I realized I can't do that. The school would not let me talk about death. I said, but this is your own book. She said, I know, but, wow. you know, we can't wow. bring that up. So, so no, we're, we're still in many ways a death is denying society and um um i actually put forth a um a ted talk proposal on you know how we need to implement death more you know uh, you know around our lives and people who know me <clears throat> and i say to my students you know what did you when you first signed up for this class if you didn't know me what what do you think i would be like and, oh I, we thought it would be this you know guy comes in you know with his black cloak on you know they're laughing <laughs> and they and their remark is, you know, you're in love with life. You, you know, appreciate life. And I said, yeah, that's that's what death can do for us. Uh, that's powerful. I, I want to talk a little bit about that children's book and your perspective on exactly how it is that we should speak with children about death. And I'm curious about how we should talk about it. When is a good time to start talking about it? and some things that we should avoid when uh, speaking with children about death. Yeah. Well, I'm a radical on this. I believe, um, first, <clears throat> that you should be honest with children about death. Um, I give the example of, you know, here's a child, five years old, seven years old, whose favorite aunt uh, ends up with breast cancer and, and um, it doesn't look good. But they keep the child in the dark because they don't, we don't want to upset our children. We don't want to bring them any more pain and so on. And so as the aunt is, you know, getting sicker, that the child is oblivious to what's going on. And then suddenly the aunt dies. And now everyone else has had a chance. So you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. You know, to, 
kind of get ready for this. And the child now is in shock because the child was not brought along. And then, you know, we don't want to bring a child to a funeral because my goodness, you know, they're going to be upset and cry and all of this. And so we keep the kid at home and now the child doesn't have. So in my death class, I talk about, you know, children and death and how important it is to be honest. And that we, you know, we look for opportunities. And and in, on my website, I, I wrote an article on teaching kids about death and about 10 suggestions for things that you can do. Uh, let me give another example. Years ago, uh, I was, when I was in my doctoral program, I got a call from um, the uh, crisis center that I had done some work for. And they wanted me to come down because a woman's husband had uh, died from suicide and uh, and the uh, his mother was there as well. And uh, they were at the crisis center talking uh, to folks um, about whether they should tell their five-year-old child that their that her his father had died from suicide and that had, you know, used a gun um, and so on. And so I came down there and I said, you know, um, I know this is hard and I know you want to protect your child, but kids can be cruel. And at some point, your your child's in kindergarten? Yes. At some point, some kid's going to come up to him on the playground and is going to say, your dad killed himself. And he's going to go, no, no, my dad died in a car accident. No, no, your dad shot himself in the head. And, you know, that's not right. I, you don't want that to happen to your child. And so there's a term in psychology called psychological inoculation that you sit down with your child ahead of time and you tell that child the things that they may hear later. They want to hear, they need to hear it from you first. Um, and, and so don't wait. And I, and I don't believe that you should hide things about them because they're going to find out later. And I've had a lot of stories of my, from my students who felt that, you know, their parents were trying to, you know, protect them, but in the meantime, they were keeping them in the dark and, and, and that wasn't healthy. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely tend to agree with you there. I, I want to pull on that a little bit further. I just had someone on the show recently who asked me that question when we were done recording. This is someone who was affected by suicide loss, and they were wondering how and when is a good time to tell their children about the loss of, it would be their, their one of their grandparents to suicide. And I, I just didn't have a good answer. That's something that is completely outside of my area of expertise. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through what, what that would look like. How would you tell a child who's somewhere between the ages of, you know, five and 10, that one of their grandparents has, has uh, died by suicide? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. So uh, first you make it one-on-one. -on -one. You don't want other people around. Uh, you want it in a, in, you know, in a place that's quiet and you sit down with your child and you say, you know, grandpa died yesterday. Yeah. And I want to tell you um, how he died because I want you to hear it from me first. Um, and, you know, grandpa, if you remember, he was having some problems. He was kind of sick. He didn't quite understand what was going on around him. And um, grandpa had a gun and he shot himself and he shot himself, you know, in the head. Um, and died instantly. Fortunately, he didn't, you know, he wasn't in pain or whatever, but it, it's a sad thing. And, uh, but I wanted you to know, mm. and then you do what every good parent does. Once you get that story out, then you just permit that silence. 
And I call it awkward silence because we want to, we're nervous and we want to keep talking and filling the airwaves with sound. And at that point, we just need to be quiet and let that sink in. And then say, are there any, you know, what do you think about that? And then wait, you know, and if the, my guess is most kids won't cry at that point, but, but they may have some questions. And if they don't, then you say, and if you have questions later, I am here. You just, you know, ask whatever questions that you want. Um, but this is something that our family is dealing with. And I wanted you to know the truth because you're part of this family. And, you know, just sit there with the child for a while. And what you may find is that for some kids, you know, it's it's difficult to hear and they may change the subject. They may say, can I go out and ride my bike now? Okay, do you have any other questions? No. All right. And, you know, you look out the window and there's a kid, you know, riding their bike around. It's like what someone say, well, how did Tommy deal with, you know, that, that news? And it's, I don't know. He's just, right. But the child needs some time to process. They need time to distract. They need time to go back to play and being a kid and so on. And, and as time goes on, you know, let's say it's a seven-year-old, that child at age nine and 13 is going to process that information, that suicide, at now a different developmental stage. And, you know, they're never going to forget it, but now they're going to see it differently as a 13-year-old uh, compared to how they saw it as, you know, as a seven-year-old. And so there may be, you know, questions coming up later. And it's, it's okay, you know, even a year later to say, you know, I was thinking about grandpa the other day, and I saw something on TV about suicide. You know, have you thought anything more about, um, you know, grandpa's death or whatever? And we often think, oh, well, you know, we don't want to bring it up again. It's going to remind them of what they've been. It's like, no, you know, they they still think about it in various ways and it's okay to bring it up. And maybe they cry this time and that's okay. You know, it's, we have a choice. We either going to, are going to educate our children and, you know, tell them the truth or we're, or we're going to try to prevent them from pain. And, you know, I opt for giving them some pain now to help them cope with any more pain later. Beautifully said. As you were going through the example of how we would have that conversation, I almost felt it spark my own childlike curiosity. And I don't think we give children enough credit for how curious and intelligent they can really be. And when we sugarcoat the message around death, I think we are taking them further away from the reality of what it is. When we tell them things like, Grandpa, not that this is necessarily diluted in and of itself, but it's not the whole truth, right? To say that grandpa's in heaven now, or grandpa went to sleep forever, or we're not going to see grandpa anymore. It's like we have this powerful opportunity to teach uh, teach our children about something that they are going to experience time and time again throughout their life. And by trying to do what we feel is protecting them is actually possibly doing more harm in the long run. Would you agree with that? Oh, Rob, you hit it exactly. I agree. Mm. Yeah. Well, I say kid, the kids are in, in one area, kids are naive. They, they can't think like adults and so on. But in other areas, kids are, you know, um, brilliant. They notice things. They notice, you know, nonverbal language of their, of their parents. Why does mom have tears in her eyes? Right. And so they pick up things. I, 
ask my students, how many of you have ever been in a room where two adults are talking, you're a kid, and one of the adults says, hey, uh, what about the kid over there? Maybe we shouldn't say this. I say, do you look up? No, you're just sitting there as a kid and you're thinking, this is great. I'm going to hear some things, right? And yeah. so the whole you know, lesson is don't say anything in front of a child um, unless you want them to know it. Even, you know, even in the next room, kids pick up information. And of course, sometimes they misinterpret it and they make up their own stories about something. And that's why honesty is so important. Absolutely. So I think the takeaway and what I'm hearing is to be direct, be truthful, be compassionate and curious and hold the space for silence and for questions. And don't be afraid to revisit the topic after the fact, once they've had a, a chance to process it a little bit further. Great. Great summary. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for, for going down that road with me. It's something I was really uh, curious about. I'd like to kind of zoom out for a second and more broadly talk about um, our, our view of death as a culture. And I'm wondering what you would say in all the work that you've done in teaching the class and, and the other work that you've done is, what would you say are some of the misconceptions that we hold as a culture about death? Yeah, this one's more, my first one thought in that is more about grief. And that is uh, somehow we get over grief. Somehow, you know, we move on from it. And, you know, we see it all the time. I remember when uh, the Columbine High School shootings uh, had occurred and and they were three days later had a funeral and someone got up in front of the funeral and said, let the healing begin. Mm. And I remember thinking, healing that they're still in shock and there is this whole idea about that at some point you will be healed i i wrote an article on um how long according to the media should grief last and i analyzed what they said what journalists said uh and interviewers said on on uh online in the newspaper on the radio on television and they used words like closure. These are not words, you know, I've worked with parents. I'm the a professional advisor for the local parent bereavement group here um, in, in Seattle, in South um, King County. And, uh, you know, I don't hear parents saying, well, it's been five years and now I have closure on the death of my child, you know. But we see that, you know, in the media, we, we see, um, you know, words like healed and, you know, Elizabeth Ross's last stage acceptance and recover and get over it and so on. And, you know, that's an unhealthy society that somehow because, we, you know, we want a good ending for something. We want to think that this horrible thing has happened, but now, you know, people have moved on with their lives and that's 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 not what happens. And um, and we have a lot of work to do on that. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And it's interesting you bring up the the Columbine shooting recently just saw, uh, I believe her name is Susan Klebold. She was the, the mother of one of the Columbine shooters. Uh, she's gone on and has been very vocal about her experience in what people kind of overlook in that whole situation is that she as a mother lost her child and is having to live with the fact of the awful things that her child chose to do up until very recently, I don't think there was even the notion that we should have compassion for that person and having that experience. 
Yeah. Uh, it was just really, really fascinating. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but it's definitely something, uh, worth, worth giving a watch. I think it's called American tragedy. Oh, really good. Yeah. Years ago, I met a woman whose son had, I think shot his girlfriend and then himself. And, um, she then was able to, um, uh, get together with Mrs. Klebold because here's someone who did this horrible thing. And so these two mothers then, you know, had this bond, sadly, but um, they were able then to, you know, learn from each other about how they were coping with it. But yeah, powerful stuff. And yeah, you know, they're brief parents. And um, that's, you know, we push those folks away because of the terrible things that their child did. But nonetheless, here they are, you know, coping with this loss for the rest of their life. So, yeah. Yeah. There, there's something powerful about surrounding ourselves with people who have been through similar things or similar losses. Um, there are a couple different uh, groups that I'm part of that are for survivors of suicide loss. And what I've learned in that group in, in my partic participation in that is that even being in this room with, you know, 10 or 15 other people who have lost a loved one to suicide, I only know the tip of the iceberg of their experience. I know what it's like to be a 26 year old man at the time who lost his father to suicide. When I'm in that room and I see, you know, a relatively young couple share about the loss of their son or daughter, it, it kind of breaks my heart all, all over again. And I realize that I have no idea what that feels like. And I'm curious, if you could maybe walk us through your perspective on that, that that has felt so heavy to me when I hear about people who have lost a child to either suicide or just lost a child in general. Um, and I'm wondering what it is about that particular type of loss that makes it so difficult to swallow and uncomfortable to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> Like I say, I've been the professional advisor for this parent bereavement group, which is called The Compassionate Friends. And for your listeners who either the, yourself or um, know someone who's experienced the um, death of a child or, or a sibling or grand, a grandchild, um, this is an amazing organization. You can um, find it online at the www.compassionatefriends.org. And so years ago, I gave a talk um, I was invited to give a talk to the local Compassionate Friends group. There are 700 chapters across the United States of this organization, all run by bereaved parents and siblings, um, a nonprofit organization. Um, they've helped hundreds of thousands of people. And so one of the chapters, one of the 700 chapters is the Seattle um, King County, South King County chapter. And so I gave a talk back in the 1980s and then um, I found out later that the parents kind of huddled together and decided that even though I wasn't a brief parent, they wanted to, and they used this word, adopt me. And so I've been their professional advisor for all these years, and I've learned, you know, so much from them. They've shared, you know, the stories. Some of them are just, you know, two months ago, their child died. Others are 20 years ago. So I get to see, you know, this whole you know, progression of the kinds of things that people are going through early and then even later. And I, whenever I give a talk um, to, I, I'm invited pretty much every year to the national organization this year, it's gonna be in Denver. 
and um, I, they usually ask me to give three workshops or so, and um, I that's how I introduce myself. I'm not a bereaved parent, but I'm a teacher, and I've taken in a lot of information about what people have shared with me about what they're going through. You know, the guilt, the anger, um, the confusion, uh, the craziness, the you know, the um, hopelessness that they feel. And, you know, I, I'm i there to tell them that as horrible as you feel right now, you're gonna make it through this. You're, you're never gonna get back to normal, of course. Um, but the, you know, the thing that, as I said a few minutes ago, that really I felt was most important for the public to hear is you never get over the death of a child. You never get over the death of a significant loved one in your life. You're always coping with it in some way. Years ago, I was at a conference and uh, we were eating lunch and there were six, seven bereaved people at my table and they're all talking and having a good time. And I remember looking around the room thinking there's like a hundred people in this room. And if someone walked in, they'd have no idea that every one of these people, except for my wife and I, had experienced the death of, of a child. Then a couple of minutes later, they started playing, you know, music like Wind Beneath My Wings and all of that. And what did, you know, what did what happened? These people's faces changed and suddenly here they are dealing with, you know, they're right back again to the death of their child. So um it, you know, it's something that and and these are scary people. They lose friends. And so I'm uh you know, awed by these folks, by the fact that they can, you know, get out of bed and, you know, put one foot in front of the other. Um, that's the, um, that's the amazing thing. And they tell me things and then I'm able to say, let me see if I can, you know, take some of this and find ways to help other people who are going through what you're going through. But you're right, you know, and one, on one hand, you can identify with these folks. And on the other hand, you know, you, you can't walk in their same shoes. But back to your point of going to a meeting. So here you are at this meeting and people are telling their stories. And, you know, for the public, it's like, Rob, why are you going to this meeting with all these sad people? And, you know, what good does that do? And you come home that night and you're, and you're feeling even worse the next day. Like, what good does that do? And so I'll put it back on you. Why, why did you go to those meetings? That's wow. That's, that's a really good question. And uh, I, I guess what I would say is it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes I leave those meetings deeply saddened by some of the things, not that just I've heard in the meeting, but some of the things that I've had to re-experience in the loss of my father. Um, but I'm a firm believer that healing in, in whatever capacity we, we can from loss and grief takes discomfort and takes pain. And if I'm completely averse to having that experience of being uncomfortable and in pain by talking about my dad, I'm not getting any closer to integrating that loss into my life. So that's that's why I go to get me ever closer to this place in the distant future of being able to live with the loss of my father in a way that feels sustainable and healthy for me. But also I've found it to be immensely important to have a community of other people who understand, who are distant from my particular loss. Because as, as I know, you know, and as I spoke at length with uh, Dr. Jordan about 
everyone in a family system responds to a suicide differently. And there are times that my experience in losing my dad and my sister's experience or my grandma's experience in losing her son are not only completely different, but really contradict each other. And that can make it difficult for us to hold space for each other to grieve as we are. So to be able to have my experience completely unfettered and uh, uncensored in a room of people who understand has been uh, very, very helpful for me. Yeah, I so many times I've heard people say, I, I don't know how I would have made it um, without going to my support group. And um, like I say, you know, the public sometimes, what are you going there for? And you just cry and then you're upset. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't sound like it's helping, but it is because you can look around and, and see people who, who get it at some level. And that that's powerful stuff. That's what support is all about. Absolutely. And it's interesting being, being in rooms like that. Um, I notice some of my defaults or character defects bubbling up to the surface, if you will. So here I am in, in a room of people who have been through a traumatic loss like I have, and I'm sitting in the back wrestling with my judgment about the way they're experiencing it because it's not the same exact way that I've experienced it. And it's funny to like let that voice chirp in the back of my head and have to try to push it aside and, and focus on why am I here and how can I be useful to the other folks in this room? Good, good stuff. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing about the Compassionate Friends project. That's something that I'll link in the show notes. I'll provide a link to that website for anyone who heard that and is interested in, in learning more. Um, really appreciate the work that you've done in, in that setting. That is something that's immensely important and obviously not talked about enough. You, you talked about the way that we view grief as a culture and the way it's talked about in media. And I've heard it spoken about in this context a few times on this show. And I, I think it was Jack Jordan who called it the flu model of grieving. And I've been using that in my own talk since then. But this idea that if we suffer through the really hard parts and hunker down, maybe lay in bed for a few days, do some self-care, we're going to get to a point that we are over the hump and ready to move on past our grief. And obviously that's not the way it works. That's not the way it's worked for me at least. And if there's this flu model of grieving, I'm curious, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but maybe you have have a, a metaphor or analogy for what what is the real model of grieving? If not this flu model, how does it unfold? Hmm, good question. I'm not sure there's a good a good term for it, but I think it's um, you know, I, I talk about in my psych classes that I teach. You know, I talk about the the brain a lot, and um, you know, as you know, when a death first occurs, uh, you know, it floods our brain with um, all the memories and all the information, and 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 there's still you know a large part of it early on, especially if it's a sudden death that we're in shock, we can't get it, you know, we're numb, we're zombies, we kind of walk through the motions, and then as time goes on, then like you say, you, you know, you're beginning to integrate it into you know your everyday life but there's still you know parts of your brain that don't get it uh and so one of the things that a term that i like is the term grief work which you know basically says that we confront the reality and the pain of the grief and that you know by doing that that's going to help us 
you know, get better and going to help us um, move on with life, maybe in ways we don't want to. When my dad, uh, my dad uh, was 80 years old, um, this is, you know, 28 years after he'd had this massive stroke, and he was in a uh, care center and he um, uh, had was coping with pneumonia. And so I went to visit him every night. So one night about 930, I'm visiting him and said goodbye to him. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. We get a call at 630 in the morning. He's um, having some problems breathing and um, they're going to intubate him either on the way to the hospital or at the hospital. And uh, so I get to the hospital and I had called my siblings and um, you know, it's, the nurse says, well, the social worker with, will be with you in a moment. I was like, they're like social worker, why, why is this social? And the social worker comes in and she didn't know that we didn't know. And she says to me and my sister, well, as you know, your father, what? Oh, wow. You know, and here we are. I could just feel my brain just go into shock, the kind of shock that I'd been talking to my students about for years and my sister's like what do you mean you know we want to see him and it took us down the hall and there he is you know lying there and so on so the next is you know it's horrible so the next day i go over to my uh dad's house my aunt was there who'd taken care of my dad all these years and i said i'm going downstairs to my dad's room to to get some things she goes okay so as i start to go down the stairs where his bedroom is i start to say is anyone down here? Which is the joke we'd always have. Um, and he would go, yeah, I'm down here. Come on down. Right. And of course, you know, there's no response. And I go down there, Rob, and I stand at his, at the doorway of his room. And I look around his room and I throw myself on the bed and I am sobbing. Mm. And later on, I realized I was doing some grief work. I was confronting the reality, like he's never going to be in this bedroom again and all the pain, you know, that was going on and realize, and, you know, like I tell my students, I have four brothers and sisters. I could have said to them, I'm never going back into dad's room again, too painful, but that's called grief work. It's confronting the hard part and, you know, getting through it. So time after time, when I went to his bedroom, over the next several weeks and months, you know, it didn't hurt as much. And so there's this other part of our brain that, you know, doesn't want to deal with it, doesn't want to talk about it. And, you know, and we, you and I talked early on um, before this started about, you know, men in grief and how men quite often involve themselves in denial and not wanting to confront and, and our, you know, the whole macho thing. And I have to be the rock of the family. And, you know, those are tough issues that, that we put on men, you know? Absolutely. I, I love the way you put that. And I, I'm a big fan of the phrase grief work because it is work and the onus is on us to do that work. And as you were describing that experience of going into your father's room for the first time and the pain and grief that came up for you in that moment and then continuing to do it again over time aligned pretty well with the way that I have viewed my grief, which, you know, as we said, there's this flu model. For me, I look at it as the weightlifting model um, because it's a context that's helpful in my own life. I, I lift weights a few times a week. I don't particularly like it. I don't enjoy lifting weights. There's never a time that I'm excited to go do it, but I still show up and I do it three or four times a week. When I'm doing it, it is hard. 
it it's physically hard it's mentally hard to keep pushing and then it's even harder just to get there to show up to do it in the first place but the more regimented i am about doing that work week after week month after month year after year it does get easier over time and more embedded with the way i live my life is not not so now it's not i'm going to do this thing it's i do this thing it's just part of what i do and i viewed my grief as the same way it's if like with exercising if i put it down and step away from it for six months when i go to pick it back up it is going to be heavy and uncomfortable and seemingly impossible to work with but the more that i've shown up and done it on a regular basis uh, the more it just becomes part of the way that I live my life. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm with you. I've lifted weights this past couple of years, and I it's not something I look forward to, but it's <laughs> it's the outcome, yeah. Yeah, it is not fun. It is not a fun process, but the, the key is showing up to do it anyway. I want to kind of take a step back. I, I want to go back to talking a little bit about the way we view death as a culture. So I think we talked about some of the misconceptions that we have around death and grief. I'm curious as a whole though, what are some of the ways in, in, your, per, in your perspective, in your experience that you feel we, we view death in our culture and Western culture that not only differs from maybe other parts of the world, but may be unhelpful or even unhealthy in helping us manage our relationship with death and dying? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, there are religions out there that just implement death into their, you know, their prayers and their readings and their, um, you know, when they get together at their synagogue or mosque uh, in ways that, you know, we don't talk about it. We, you know, we wait till a death occurs and then, you know, we, um, focus in on um, how we might cope with it and so on. But, but you know, we are still in many ways, I mean, you know, a million people have died from COVID. And yet, if you were a Martian and you landed in this country and you'd look around, you'd think, well, there's very little talk about death. It, you know, yes, it affected certain people, but um, we just, you know, we, we seem to have moved on from it. Okay. So... <laughs> So let me give you an, an extreme example, okay? Uh, there's a, a group of people in um, Malaysia, uh, when a loved one dies, when a loved one has ceased breathing and their heart has ceased, they don't believe the person's really dead. They, wait, they take the body and they wrap it up and preserve it. And then they hang the body on the ceiling of their hut. And for the next year, they don't consider the person dead, okay? And then after a year or so, they bring the person down and then the grief begins. In the meantime, the body has been hanging there for a year, right? So there's a, you know, an extreme example of, of um, you know, how people, one group of people, you know, deals with the death. But, you know, for us, there's this belief that you have the funeral. And let me also say this. There are a lot of people today who say, I don't want a funeral. I don't want a memorial service. Just cremate me or bury me and move on with life. And I understand that mentality because, you know, for most of us, 
we don't want to think about dying, you know, being dead, being in a casket, and our loved one peering over, looking at our casket and crying and being upset and so on. We want to spare our loved ones from pain. Okay. And so with that belief, then we think we 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 can shortcut grief. You know, my students, when they write papers, they say things like, I don't want my loved ones to, you know, to be sad or to grieve or whatever. And I write, well, you know, you're not going to control that. That That's going to happen anyway. And so different countries and different religions, different cultures have, uh, you know, quite wonderful ways of, of dealing with grief. You know, um, some Chinese aspects of the Chinese culture, you know, they have the obon and, and, and they uh, visit grief again after a hundred days, right? That's three mm -hmm. months. In America, we're supposed to move on. And, you know, um, the um, El Dia de los Muertos, um, the Mexican tradition that some folks have where they go to the graves on October 30th, 31st, November 1st, and they go to the graves of their loved ones and they absolutely believe that their loved ones come back to visit, right? And so they clean the graves, they bring food, they may play music. And, you know, I mean, what a great tradition to think that, hey, my grandpa has come back to visit today. And they, and they set food up and some of that food is for the um, people who come back and, you know, and visit. And you may talk to your loved ones. And the other side of it is that, you know, I talk to widowed people who say, when my husband died, I still talk to him. And I don't tell anyone that. I'm telling you that because I know you understand. And I say, that's totally normal. And I've had other widow people who say, I saw my husband, you know, a month after I died. There he was, after he died, I, there he was standing in the in the kitchen. Well, about 50% of all widowed people have that experience of, you know, their loved ones coming back to to visit them. But these are things that, you know, we often in America don't want to talk about. We, you know, have a death and we, we're supposed to move on. Absolutely. I want to pull on that a little bit further and talk about some of the norms around death. And if it's not just Western culture and in, in America, especially. So the idea of the open casket funeral or cremation and having a repass and having a physical grave site that some people visit every day. Um, are these things that you view as necessarily inherently helpful or harmful? They are the norm, so it's what we're expected to do. And like you mentioned, you sound like a renegade if you say, I don't want a funeral, or when I die, give me a Viking funeral, send me off on a ship and burn it down. And you sound crazy to the average person in our society. And I'm wondering, th these norms that we've just accepted as ways that we handle death, do you view them as inherently helpful or harmful? Yeah, let me give the opposite of that. You know, we, we are at a place in, um, for example, here in King County, which is, this is the, the Seattle County, more than 60% of people are cremated now. Uh, and cremation rates have, you know, uh, been increasing over the years, yeah, um, which is fine. Um, but for a lot of people, it's like, just scatter my cremated remains and move on. And I think that, in my opinion, it's my professional opinion to think it's a mistake. It's a mistake because I believe people, some people, let's say there's 20 people in the family and this person dies, right? 
for 10 of them, it might be, oh, that's nice. Every time I go to the ocean, I think of grandpa because his cremated remains are in the ocean and that's fine. But maybe there are 10 other people who say, you know, I'd like to would like to have gone to a place and there's grandpa's name on there and there's maybe part of grandpa's cremated remains are in there and and that's the place that I go to visit you know for other people it's like no I'm he's with me all the time but we're seeing an increased number of people who are not having some sort of place that they can go and in my opinion I I, I think that's a, I think that's a mistake yeah, well, well said. I'm wondering if you think that can be taken to an extreme where it, it may be unhelpful, though. I'm thinking of a family member that I have, uh, obviously not going to go into too much detail, but over the last 13 or 14 years, probably have missed maybe 15 or 20 days of going to a particular gravesite of a loved one. And it has become absolute ritual, absolute habit. And I've just been curious about it. If, if it works for them and it makes them feel connected to their loved one, I have no place to, to judge it or offer any input on it. But I'm wondering if you think, I, I know they talk about complicated grief. I'm wondering if that could feed into that at all. Yeah, great, great question. I, you know, um, I have no problem with that, with someone who is, you know, visiting the gravesite and so on. Except if, and I'm sure Dr. Jack Jordan would agree with me on this, if the person misses, you know, a couple days and then feels guilty and feels like what's wrong with me and I'm forgetting my loved one and so on, then that becomes, starts to move over into unhealthy grief. Mm. If, you know, if they're going to go on a, if they, you know, can't go on their trip to China because, you know, they got to go to the, you know, that, that's a problem. A similar parallel issue is what, how do you keep the room? of the loved one who has died, especially a child, you know? Oh, wow. And so years ago, I was invited to uh, uh, the compassionate friends in Tacoma, which is 30 miles south of here. And uh, they wanted me to give a talk on grief. They wanted me to give a talk on what is the difference between, this is the title they wanted me to address. What is the difference between going crazy and being bereaved? <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to say to them, there is no difference because you feel like you are going crazy. Um, but when I got there and I was talking at one point, uh, a mom, they were all bereaved parents, raised her hand, there were about 30 of them there. And she said, uh, this was in like, I think it was in January. And her, she said, my daughter died last July. So like six months before that. And I have not touched her bedroom. And people are telling me, you know, I need to change the bedroom and, you know, change it into a sewing room. And I, she said, I just can't do it. Is, is that wrong? And what I did was I said to all the parents who sitting in the back and I said to all the parents, will you turn around and tell her whether that's wrong or not? Because I knew what they were going to say. And they turned around and they said, no, you know, you decide. And I said, kind of an extreme, if you want to keep that room for a couple of years, you know, you decide if you want to do that. Now, on the other hand, if you feel like, well, you know, no one else can go in the room or don't touch this bedspread or whatever, well, that, right. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it's okay. Uh, did, did you have a funeral for your daughter? Yeah. Was it tough to go to? Yeah. Did you cry? Yeah. Well, you're not, you're not in denial. You knew your daughter died. And yet she said, I go and I lie in her bed and I smell her pillow. I said, great. You know, that's that's part of your grief work. And so, you know, go, you know, go for that. So, you know, I, I see that as, you know, 
you know, two parallel issues of people are like, oh, you know, what's wrong with this? Why are people, you know, you know, um, trying to pretend that this person is still uh, alive? But and another talking about all the articles that I wrote, but I get these ideas, especially as a couple of brief parents will call me up and say, Dr. Bob, we were at a meeting last night and uh, we were talking about this issue. And and uh, we and I thought, oh, you know. Bob should write an article about uh, around this. So, um, you know, one article I've I've written is um, saying goodbye to goodbye, right? You know that the presumption is that when someone dies, we say goodbye to them and we, you know, they move on with life. I believe, yeah, you may say goodbye to the body, but we never say goodbye to goodbye. You know, you still have your dad inside of you. You look at pictures. You know, my dad died. I you know, still think about him and, you know, I might talk to him at times and so on. And that's because they're still in here. And well-meaning people then are like, well, you know, let's move on with life. And, you know, you need to sever that connection. No, that, you know, that goodbye thing, I think is a mistake. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, like, like I mentioned to you before we started recording, I want to avoid getting too deep in like the philosophy or getting too esoteric about death. But there is a question I'm curious about, and maybe I should have started with it, but I, I do want to ask you, you talked about some of the different ways that death is viewed in other cultures. And I'm curious from your perspective, what exactly is death? I don't know if that's a silly question, but what is it? Is it a state of some someone or something that was once living? Is it ceasing to exist how would you define death holy mackerel rob <laughs> well you know it it is the ultimate mystery and you know for people who think about suicide uh, and i give a um i teach a class called suicide intervention in fact last weekend saturday and sunday from 8 30 to 4 30 i uh, with a co-instructor we trained 17 people in suicide intervention and um i say that you know to for those of you who have not had suicidal feelings not been depressed and so on it may be difficult for you to understand but when you are in so much pain all you can think about is i can't take this anymore and you start thinking about death the problem is we don't know what it is. We don't know. No one's ever come back and told us exactly what it's like. We have different religions that, you know, give their interpretations of it. But, you know, it 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 is this sense of, you know, non-existence as, as to, you know, where we are on earth and, you know, what it means to each of us. And, and many of my students, when they sign up for the class and I say, you know, why are you here? And many of them say, because I was afraid of death. And I thought, why not take this class on it? And for many of them, they say, you know, I, I still have some fear about it, but now I'm more comfortable with it. I can be at the dinner table. And when my dad passes the milk, I say, dad, what kind of funeral do you want? And he goes, oh, it's that class you're taking. I don't want to talk about my <laughs> So I don't know where else to go with this you know, Rob, other than, you know, it, it is obviously, as everyone knows, that the biggest mystery and everyone has to come to their own conclusion about what they think death is. And I have a student, not a student, a friend of mine come in who has experienced the near death experience. And so she comes in and talks about 
NDEs, um, near-death experiences, where people supposedly died on the operating table or died, you know, in an accident and then were brought back and they had memories of flowing, you know, going through a tunnel toward a light and towards some being and then they were told to come back and, you know, was that really death or is that our brain making up, you know, some um, story about, you know, what a dying brain would do. So, so it's a deep question and I'm not sure I have much more of an answer for it. Yeah, I guess I did just kind of throw the ultimate question at you. Didn't mean to do that. I, I don't want to get too deep down the rabbit hole, but you brought it up and I've found myself being curious about it as we're sitting here, which is how you personally view near-death experiences. Um, it sounds like you've had some interaction and involvement with folks who have had them. And they're like, like you alluded to, are a lot of different takes as to what could be actually going on there from a physiological standpoint, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, do you have a, a personal perspective on what a near-death experience is? It, no, it's more of, unfortunately, an academic one because in my death class, uh, in the book they read, there's like eight different theories of near-death experiences. And so I'm confused. I don't have uh, you know, a, a conclusion. When my friend comes in and talks about her near-death experience, it's very compelling. And, you know, it's not up to me to say, oh, you just made that up or that that couldn't have happened that way and so on. Um, but uh, I re require my students then to come up with at least four different explanations, four different theories, one of which is they person really died and that they really experienced it. But another mm -hmm. was that a dying brain then will make up information about um, uh, how what it's going through because, it you know, it's it's confused and so creates a story of, of death. So, so I don't, I don't know. I'm, uh, I don't have a clear conclusion about it, but that's great. You know, it's, it's a great mystery and one that, um, <laughs> that we're all going to find out someday, either it's going to be oblivion or we're going to, you know, uh, my brother-in-law before he died said, he says, well, I'm going to, he had leukemia 12 years ago. And he said, well, uh, either it's going to be oblivion or I'm going to say, now I know the answer. And then he looked at me, but I won't be able to tell you. So you get <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for going there with me. There, there's a documentary out there uh, about folks who have had near-death experiences. And what I find most compelling about it is how similar a lot of these experiences are. So what, what drives that similarity is still the big question mark, but um, I think we can rule out that this is something that people are making up, um, at least in my my estimation. Um, the next question I'm going to ask you is, I, I want to admit, is fully self-serving. Um, I think it may be helpful to folks who hear it, um, but it is coming from a place of pure curiosity for myself. I'm wondering, what are some things you would suggest or recommend that I could do in my own life? to start to come to terms with my own death, with death of my loved ones, with things that are the inevitable reality that we don't talk about, how can I start to prepare for those things? Great. One of the first things I do uh, in my death class, the second day of class, is I take them through a two-minute death, I call it a two-minute death think. And on the last day of class, we go through it again. And what I do is I say, 
So in a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and to get, you know, go inside yourself and find a comfortable space. And then for two minutes, I want you to think about nothing but death. And if you're like most people, your brain after 17 or 34 seconds is going to jump and start to think about something else. And your job is to bring yourself back and say, I'm supposed to be thinking about death. And then once that two minutes is up and I have my students pull out paper and write down what came up for them. And for me, what I've done over the years, it, because I think right along with them. So I've done it, you know, a couple of hundred times. And what I do is I imagine one of my loved ones dying. Well, imagine one of my loved ones dead and how I might react to it and so on. And so I write that out. So I have a bunch of papers that I've stashed away that are imagining my wife dead, my son dead, my daughter dead, my sister, my brother, you know, um, and how we might react to that. And that, of course, is painful to think about. But what it does is it makes me, you know, appreciate the fact that I have them at this moment. And that to understand one more time that we are um, not guaranteed of having them, you know, one more minute. The second is that I I think it's helpful to, you know, keep a, uh, a journal, a diary, you know, after a loved one dies. Um, and to say, today I was thinking about dad and I was thinking about the time we went to the ocean and how much fun we had and the he was standing there and the waves washed over him and he was laughing and, you know, totally drenched because he didn't see that wave, right? And things like that where um, we can, I, and for me, I keep a, a journal on a voice recorder. Um, and I used to keep it on a cassette recorder. So I have 40 years of, of me talking about how my life has been going. And I, I think that can be helpful. Another one is to write a letter to your loved one. If you haven't already, write a letter to your dad and say, here, here I am, dad. Today's, you know, July 20, what is it, the 28th. And um, here, here I am, I'm doing this podcast and I'm talking about you. And, um, uh, and here's how, you know, my sister has been dealing with your death. And here's, you know, you have a new grandchild and, you know, um, writing those letters and I, I think it's and not just one and some people say write a letter and burn it I, I'm not a, a big fan of that you write the letter you know you maybe read it and then you put it aside and then a month or a year later you read it again and you kind of see where you were in your grief but you know what you're doing is you know you're getting it out I give my students a um a, a very powerful exercise in class I say all right pull out a clean sheet of paper and divide it into four parts, tear it into four parts. And on each piece of paper, write the name of someone that you love, someone that you care for. So they do that. And then they say, okay, now I want you to hold the four pieces of paper like cards with the names facing toward you. And I want you to go to, some, to someone sitting next to you and I want them to pull one of the names out. So they go ahead and do that. And I say, now you've pulled someone's name out. I want you to show your partner the name that they've, you've pulled out and I want you to crush that and give it back to them. And then I write up on the board, what if I found that and then, and write this down on your notes, blank, this person died, right? And a few times I've had people cry. One time I had a mother and daughter uh, in my class and they ended up pulling out each other's names and they both burst into tears. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I say to my students, is, is this a this is a cruel exercise, right? You know, do, do I wish it on you? Of course not. 
could it happen? Yes, right? And mm. so it's, you know, um, it, it's reminding us one more time that, you know, life is short and that um, if you're going to do these things, do them now. So often I've heard people say, you know, their regrets. I should have said this. I should have done this. Why didn't I do this? You know, I didn't know he was going to die. You know, this whole guilt issue that goes on. And for me, you know, when my mom died 30 years ago and my dad died and my my sister's husband, Jeff, died and um, the other deaths that I've experienced, I cried like everybody else. When my mom was sick with cancer and we knew she was going to die uh, back in 1991, I'd been teaching the death class at that point for like 14 years. And I, I wondered myself, how am I going to react to a death? And I realized I reacted like everyone else. I cried. I, you know, I got upset. I was angry. I, you know, felt all these feelings that I was feeling. And I realized that for myself, the best advice that I gave myself is just grieve however you're going to grieve, you know, just mm -hmm. let it out. If you're feeling angry, you're angry, right? You just let that happen. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, can put us in touch with life today. My wife and I'm looking over to my left here is uh, where our kitchen is. And, um, and sometimes we'll be standing in the kitchen and we'll look into each other's eyes. We've been married 53 years. And one of us will say, I wonder who's going to go first. Mm. And for some people that's scary. You know, there's this superstition that if I talk about death, you know, it might happen. But what it does is at that moment, it just makes the moment more intense about how lucky we are to have each other at that moment and that we've had each other, you know, that many years. And one more thing, I tell my students um, that there's somehow this belief that if you talk a lot about death, that somehow it'll happen to you. And I'll say, and I say to my students, you know, at some point I'm going to die. And in the college newspaper, it's going to have a little article that said, death instructor dies. And then I say to them, <laughs> people are going to go, see, the guy talked about death and then he died. And then I point to my students and I say, but you're going to stand up and say, this guy's been talking about death for more than 40 years. If someone should have died talking about death, he should have died a long time ago. No, talking about death doesn't cause it. I love that. I, I love that. I just out of curiosity, is, is there a way that someone would be able to take this course without being a university enrolled student? Uh, this guy, uh, probably not. Uh, but but um, if they want to go online, uh, go on YouTube and type in my name, Bob Bauer, uh, there's some um, uh, YouTube videos that have been taken of me talking about death and grief and loss. Uh, I was concerned um, that when I retire, I'm going to retire in uh, June. Um, uh, one of my colleagues said that she would teach the class online, but you got to you got to sign up for the class. But there's a lot of, you know, quite wonderful things out there on the Internet. There's some terrible things on there, as you know, as well. Oh, some yeah. really myths that um, people put forth. So um, but people are welcome to look at any any of my videos. And um, and if they want to contact me, I'm fine with that. Excellent. Yeah, I will link all that as well in the show notes, a way to contact you as well as some of those videos. I want to just revisit. It's starting to really click for me why why this course is called death and life and not death and dying, because I'm really starting to see the more you focus on death, the more it has an impact on the way you live. 
And I've realized that through losing my dad. And I think this is probably one of the most common regrets that people have after losing someone. For me, it showed up as I never got to tell him how much he means to me. And I just not having that opportunity really hurts and it really stings. And what that's enabled me to do now is let the people I love know how much they mean to me. So it has had a direct impact on the way I live my life and the way I interact with my loved ones. Um, and, and you talk about writing letters. This is something we talked about at length on, I think it was episode two of the podcast with uh, Dr. David Treadway. And he kind of helped me break through because I haven't been able to write to my dad because what happens is I'll sit down and I'll try to recap everything I've felt in the last five and a half years since he's died. And I'll get about two paragraphs in, get overwhelmed and frustrated, uh, delete the file and move on. And what he helped me realize is just try to write what I'm feeling in that moment. So that's what I do. I sit down almost every day and write a couple sentences or a paragraph or whatever comes out to my dad about what I'm feeling right in that moment. Like, hey, dad, I'm feeling kind of pissed off today about the choice you made. Uh, just wanted to let you know that I still miss you, but I'm feeling angry today. Or just tell him what's going on in that moment. And it's made it a lot more uh, kind of tactical. And I've been able to kind of free that block. That's great. Good for you. That's grief work. It is. And it feels good. Not always, but uh, eventually it comes around to feeling good. There, there are two more things I want to ask you. I want to be mindful of, of the time and of your time. Um, this is another self-serving question that I think might help other people. I've had the experience both before and after losing my dad. So I don't think it's just directly related to the trauma of losing my dad to suicide, but I've had the experience of losing loved ones where I get the news I go through the funeral, I get back home and have the experience of almost feeling nothing, nothing at all. I don't feel sad. I don't feel overwhelmed. I, I just feel almost void of feeling around the fact that this person does not exist in the way that they've existed my entire life. And that has made me feel so incredibly guilty. Um, it's like, wow, did I never really care about or love this person in the first place? Um, and then, you know, obviously my experiences usually comes back around. And at some point, a month, six months, a year later, I have an intense moment of grief. And that's where it kind of starts for me. But I'm I'm curious what what you would say about that experience. I'm assuming it's not uncommon, but how how you would describe it and how you would suggest someone works through that. Yeah, I'm going to give the um, psychology uh, statement, which is accept your feelings, um, which means that if you don't feel much, you, you got to go with that. Um, and that at some point in the future, there may be something that's going to trigger it. So and and there are all kinds of reasons why, you know, you, is it we get busy with life and this terrible thing has happened. But, you know, I got 28 things to do and um and then you're feeling bad that, gee, how come I, you know, put that person's, you know, death and life aside? Um, and that's because you're, you know, your life is, you know, moving on forward in ways that, um, you know, you're trying to catch up with it. And, you know, another one is, especially if it was somewhat of a, a significant death, is that it is denial, right? We just, we can't believe it, especially if we haven't seen that person much. 
you know, in the recent past. And therefore, you know, just there's this part of our brain that can't believe that we're not going to see them again. And especially if we never, if we didn't see the body, we didn't see them dead. I tell my students, you know, um, if someone significant dies in your life, you know, you, you may be faced with the question, do I want to see this person dead or not? And what we know, and at least what we suggest is that when people see the body, as terrible as that is, they're able to kind of move down the denial scale. But, you know, with no no funeral, especially, and no memorial service, no, no body, that we just, um, you know, it's harder for us to really get that this person has died. And then, like you say, something comes along later where, you know, um, their birthday or we see their picture or something comes up that we remind we are reminded of it. And then maybe some of the grief starts, but grief is tough enough. And then what we do is we we feel guilty that I one of the first articles I ever wrote was called What If I Grieved Perfectly? And I wrote it because no one has ever come up to me and say, you know, Dr. Bob, I'm grieving just right. You know, I'm crying just the right amount of tears and I'm just angry enough and so on. I'm, I'm doing perfect. Right. And, you know, again, it's going to you're going to grieve how you're going to grieve and, um, you know, uh, permit yourself to, you know, to, to do that. And we feel guilty enough about things. We say I should have and why didn't I if only and so on. Um, but. Um, you know, the question is, what can you do with your grief now and just let it happen however it's going to happen? Mm. Yeah, thank you. you. You talk about the the experience and importance of seeing the body after a loved one dies. That's something I've carried a, around a lot of anger and resentment uh, about my dad's death is when I arrived at the scene of where, where my dad uh, took his life, I asked to see him and uh, vehemently was prevented from doing that by the investigators and EMTs that were on site. And I pleaded with them. I was like, please let me see my dad. And there's, they, not only did they say no, they said, there is no way you, you are not able to see him. We're doing an investigation. And the fast forward to the funeral, I went through the funeral kind of having that experience of I'm not really feeling anything and was noticing that in the moment. And then everybody left. I was the last person in the funeral home. And as I was walking out of the room where my father's body was, I realized that was the last time I was ever going to see him in that way and had probably the most powerful moment that I've had in the five and a half years of grieving my dad's loss. I cried in a way that I've never cried in my life. I talked to my dad as if his body that were across the room were him sitting there listening. Um, so yeah, that definitely resonates with me, the importance of having that experience. And I don't know what it did for me, but I do know it, it definitely did something that felt important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those avoidance, avoidance conflicts. You know, if you see the person dead, then, you know, you have that memory. If you don't see them dead, then it's like, you know, I never really, you know, does it really, it just takes longer to sink in. Yep. Well, good for you. I'm glad, um, that you were able to kind of catch yourself and, do what you needed to do at the time. Yeah, thank you for letting me share that. So there's one last thing I want to touch on. Um, it's funny, I keep it right here by my side at most times. <laughs> I've read quite a bit of literature on suicide loss after losing my dad. 
this was one of the first books that I picked up and it's the one that I come back to the most. I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking with you. I've said this on a lot of episodes. Uh, the book that you co-authored with Jack Jordan after suicide loss has been so immensely helpful for me um, in, in coming to terms with grieving, trying to accept the loss of uh, my dad and the fact that my dad took his own life. And I think it speaks so well to the nuances of losing a loved one to suicide versus in other ways. Um, and I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about the thought that went into writing that book. And I'm also just really curious about your relationship with Jack Jordan, how that came to be. Uh, so over the years, I've written uh, a lot of books. Most of mine are, are about the size of of uh, the suicide book. We don't want a 500 page book because people in grief, you know, aren't gonna, aren't gonna write it. And I get, as I said before, inspiration from people who like the guilt book. You know, uh, I'd heard so much about it and um, I was asked to do some workshops. So I ended up writing, um, you know, a whole little booklet on, on, uh, on guilt. But um, so here I was uh, several years ago, 20 some years ago, and I um, was going to write a book on sudden death. Uh, in the meantime, I came across a guy whose daughter had been murdered. And so we then had just focused on writing a book on coping with homicide. And so um, he, I just, you know, said, have you ever written a book before? No. So, um, so here's our, our, our homicide book. So in the meantime, I, um was a member of this association for death education this is a great story i'll try to get through it um quickly um and so someone gave me the phone number for jack jordan because he was on a committee that i was interested in so i called and i left a phone message and then he called back and said oh you want to be the chair of this committee and so i called him up and said no no i don't, I don't want to be the chair i'm just interested in it and so we started talking and I said, oh, what do you do? And so we talked and he said, oh, suicide and so on. I said, huh, I was just interested now in writing a book on sudden death and you know, like suicide. I said, have you ever written a book before? And he goes, no. And I said, well, what do you think about this? And he goes, hmm, well, why don't we get started? So then basically I wrote some pages and I sent them uh, to him online on uh, tracking using the tracking word uh uh, program and we went back and forth for about a year or so okay and we ultimately have, after a year we finished it and wrote the first uh, edition of it you have the second edition and uh and it's self-published in fact ironically right in here uh in this in our garage is the guy who prints my books he's helping my son do some remodeling on the garage and uh uh, he's, you know, and so he's printed like almost 200,000 of all the books that I've written. So he's got, to, you know, so he's self-published the books. We've got it on Amazon. We're selling the book and so on. He and I never met each other, Jack Jordan and I. But the next year, uh, it, there was going to be this um, uh, conference. And so I'd seen a little picture of him about this big before. He'd never seen one of me. And so here we are at the conference. It's the first day. There's four or 500 people there. The first session is over and I'm thinking, you know, he must maybe around here someplace, see if I can see him. So I'm looking around and here's this guy sitting there talking to this woman. And uh, I, I and 
here's the name badges right here. So I'm going up to him looking at his name. He has no idea who I am. And he stands up and he goes, hi, I'm Jack Jordan. And I go, I'm Bob Bauer. Oh my God. And he's <laughs> hugging me and all that. And the woman goes, you just met this guy and you're hugging him? He goes, this is the co-author of my book. The co-author, you never met him before? No. That is such a cool story. Yeah, it's a great, great story. So I love uh, that. And he's come to Seattle a couple of times. He's been over at my house for dinner. And um, and uh, my dad is in a mausoleum and uh, it's near the airport. So I took Jack uh, to the airport and we stopped off to see my, my dad in this mausoleum. And he asked a great question. Jack is so good. Uh, he said, if if you were meeting my dad right now, what, what would he say? And I said, oh, my dad calls everybody uncle. And he'd go, hello, Uncle Jack. How you doing? You know, and, <laughs> and it just felt so good, right? You know, when people talk about your dad, it feels yeah. great. You know, And that that was, you know, just a nice memory of Jack. That was like 10 years ago or so. So that's our that's our story of how we met. I, I love that. And <clears throat> you talking about your dad calling everyone uncle. My dad's thing was if if he liked somebody, he would call them Eddie. I don't know why. I don't really? know where it came from. <laughs> So like, you know, his brothers in law, hey, Eddie, what's going on, Eddie? So I've, I've kept that tradition alive. So it's been good talking with you today, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, 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 great. I love that. Yeah. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of plug anything or touch on anything or ask any questions uh, based on things that we didn't cover that maybe you were hoping we would. And it's okay if there's nothing, I'd just like to give you the opportunity. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happened with the second edition is that Jack, Jack really is, you know, an ultimate expert on suicide. He's gone all over the nation and different parts of the world on it. And so I was the first author on the first edition. And then because he added so much to the second edition, then he moved into authorship of the first of a uh, of, of first author. And one of the things that he included in the second edition, which I really think is powerful, is dealing with children um, who've, uh, loved, whose loved ones have experienced suicide. And I'll just go back to what I said earlier and that how important it is to be honest. Mm. And yes, it's painful, but, you know, the alternative is that you now have, um, you know, um, lied to the child or, you know, told the child some other story that later on they're going to find out. And, you know, it's important early on that you sit down with that child like we talked about and and uh, share that. And the other part of it that I that I think Jack really added to the book is that it's important as you're coping with your grief to find ways to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's that's what our loved one would want to do. And, you know, for I know for especially parents, quite often they feel like maybe they could just let themselves die. And I've talked to a lot of parents who, you know, say, if if I die, you know, they say, if I were driving down the street and a semi truck was headed at me, just let it kill me, because then two things will happen. One, the pain will stop and the other will be with my child. Mm. And I understand those feelings. But, you know, your job as a as a survivor is continuing to live and, you know, living a good life, despite the fact that you're dealing with, you know, uh, a tough issue in your life. Um, and in most cases, your loved one would want you to go on and live a good life. 
Beautifully said, and I appreciate you reiterating the importance of how we uh, message death and suicide loss to children. I think that's something that's going to be really uh, helpful to folks who hear this episode. Um, really just want to take a second to express my gratitude for not just the work that you do, but taking the time out of your day to sit sit here and speak with me today. Uh, it's been really informative and I'm, I'm walking away feeling like I have a kind of a new a new perspective on uh, not death and dying, but death and life. So thank you for joining me today, Bob. Really appreciate it. Great. Good. Thank you very much, Rob. Thanks for doing this. Sure thing. Looking forward to chatting with you again soon. OK, bye. All right. Bye now.